Well, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we're moving on to verses 25 through 40. I'm kind of hoping that maybe we'll get through all of this today, but we may not. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 25 through 40. And uh, the focus here is on singleness. Singleness. Verse 25 says this, Now concerning virgins... I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I think then that this is good in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life, and I am trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. But I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife, and his interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried and the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and spirit, but the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. But if any man thinks he is acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth... And if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will, and has decided this in his own heart, to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. But in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I also have the Spirit of God. So, we're, we're in this section of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where Paul is actually speaking out to uh, questions that were asked of him. We know that from chapter 7 verse 1 because he spent six chapters dealing with issues that he wanted to communicate to the church. And then finally in chapter 7 verse 1, he says, now concerning the things about which you wrote. And the next line of verse 1 in chapter 7 is seems to have been a slogan or something that Paul had taught before and people had latched onto and applied it really out of context. And so the slogan in verse 1, now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Euphemism for touch there is to have sexual relations with a woman. 
And he had uh, evidently had said that. If he, didn't, if he hadn't already said that, he says it here, um, that it's a good thing to be celibate. Paul evidently was celibate at this time. And so, uh, but some had taken that and applied it to every situation they were in. It's clear from this chapter that there were some who were prizing celibacy as more spiritual than those who were not celibate. That somehow a sexual relationship, even in marriage, would actually cause you to be less spiritual than somebody who is celibate. And so evidently you had people in marriages trying to live a celibate life, which is what he speaks out against. Or you had people wanting to get a divorce from their spouse. Perhaps their spouse was a pagan and they didn't want that pagan influence on their children. And so he addresses that as well. Uh, Some people may have already gotten divorced, and they're both believers, but now they both want to live as singles. And so he addresses that as well. And he gives a general principle uh, in verses 17 to 24 that we looked at last week. And the general principle, which he says three times, is remain as you are. Uh, Unless the Lord opens a way or or makes it clear that you have something to go to that would be better, um, remain as you are. Um, and that, that he sets within the context of verses 17 to 20 of your cultural identity of Jews who are trying to become un-Jewish and also social identity, verses 21 through 24, of slaves who were thinking about it'd be better to be free. And he's basically saying the principle is whatever situation you have found yourself in when God called you, don't let your life focus to get out of that situation. You have a new focus. And we had a... Um, a question last week where uh, somebody, we had a, a time for questions at the end. I hope to have some times for questions this week as well. But somebody at the end asked a question, and apparently I misunderstood it because my loving wife said, I think you misunderstood that. But um, uh, it, it, the question had something to do with um, the high calling of motherhood, and I took the person or the group, I took you all to Titus chapter 2 and talked about priorities at home and how important that is. But I think that the context of the question was, well, what about singles? And are they missing out on some high calling? And we had already talked about how sometimes pastors you know, are addressed as someone who having the highest calling and all of this. That was part of our discussion last time. And really, I want to try and answer that by way of introduction, and that is that, that motherhood is not the highest calling for women. The point that Paul is trying to make in this whole chapter is that your marital status, your cultural background, your social identity is not what defines you. Christ defines you. And your highest calling is to magnify Christ in whatever situation you are in right now. So if you're divorced or a widow, then remarriage should not be your life goal. If you are married... Singleness should not be your goal. If you are a Jew, becoming a Gentile is of no benefit to you. If you're a slave, you can glorify God in that circumstance as well. And so when we think about our callings of where we are, this general principle is that you should not really make it your focus to leave that situation. If you have a desire to, it's not a bad desire. If God gives you an opportunity to leave that, that could be a good opportunity, all right, if there is a biblical warrant for it. And he addresses all of these specifically. 
But in our passage this morning, verses 25 through 40 of 1 Corinthians 7, there are two key ideas for single people who are thinking about whether they should remain single or get married. And so we're looking at that, and the the two key ideas, the first one is the principle for singleness is the same. The principle for singles is the same as what he's been saying before. That's verses 25 to 27. The rest of our passage, which we'll look at, verses 28 through 40, is that there is freedom for singles, and it's related to the same freedom that other believers have. So let's take a look at, first of all, the first key idea for single people, and that is the principle for singles is the same. Take a look at verses 25 through 27. Now concerning virgins... I actually should stop there, because some of your Bibles don't say virgins, do they? They say the betrothed. The ESV uses betrothed, I believe. Um, NASB says virgins. Anybody have anything different than that? So are we talking about engaged people, or are we talking about people who are just single ladies, what we could say daughters? Um, And... uh, and, and the, the, uh, the, the answer to this is really found down in verses 36 to 38. So right from the beginning, we're going to jump down there to find out, because there's a, there's a huge difference in the translation from the different versions, not virgins, versions, verses 36, 38. Uh, the ESV speaks to young men who are engaged, and the New American Standard speaks to fathers who have daughters. Um, the... The NASB uh, verse, let me, let me read, I'll start in verse 36 in the NASB. If any man thinks that he has acted unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if you have the NASB, NASB you might notice that the word daughter there is in italics. And so it's not there in the original. The translators of the New American Standard Bible put any word that is added to give help smooth out the reading, they put it in italics, which is really helpful because, um, you know, we don't have a literal word-for-word translation. It would be too difficult for us to understand, and so they add words in that smooth it out, like every translation. Even though it's more of a word-for-word translation, it's not a literal word-for-word. And so they've added the word daughters in there because there is textual evidence to support the fact that they're speaking to fathers here. Um, and so, uh, toward his virgin daughter, if she has passed her youth, um, and, and it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, but let her marry. Let me, let me just stop there. Um, this is, um, this is difficult because, uh, you have two good translations and two possible interpretations and the translators have decided to choose different interpretations. I don't know of another passage of Scripture where you have such a stark contrast. The good news is that the application of this passage is the same, whether he's speaking to those who are engaged and speaking to the, the, uh, the groom-to-be with his fiance. What is it, fiance and fiance? I don't, I don't know. I didn't, never took French. I, I, don't know, I don't know. But anyway, so you, but, but whether he's speaking to the the groom-to-be and his, and his fiancé, or whether he's speaking to um, a father and his unmarried, single, never-been-married daughter. It's unclear, but I think it's more clear that it's his daughter. 
and I'll tell you why. There are two reasons that swayed me. I spent some, a, a decent amount of time actually looking into this, and, and um, I, I think that you know, it doesn't, we don't need to be dogmatic on it because, again, it doesn't really change the application of the text. But let me show you the keys why I think he's speaking about daughters here. It has to do, one of them is found in verse 37 and one is found in verse 38. In verse 37 in the New American Standard, it says, but he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and is decided in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter. Okay, or to keep his own virgin, if you remove the word daughter, because it's in italics there. And so the ESV says, and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed. He will do well. The NASB says, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter. He will do well. The reason why I think this is awkward is that the verb to keep, which is a common verb used throughout the New Testament, and we know what it means. It means to hold on to something or to keep it, right? And if you take the ESV position, you're saying that he's telling somebody who's engaged somebody to keep her a virgin. So that somehow he's telling them to have either a perpetual engagement where they never get married, or he's telling them, which would kind of be weird, I'm engaged. Oh, really? When's the date? Oh, never. You know? <laughs> it just seems funny, you know, that that would be a principle laid out here, or the other alternative is that he keeps her by breaking up with her, right? And I'm sure there's some good quote, like if you love something, set it free or whatever. But I mean, that, that, that is, uh, that's what this would have to be saying, that somehow you keep her a virgin by not marrying her and therefore you break up with her and that's what you should do. The alternative, if you see verse 37 as speaking to fathers, is that he decides, fathers who in ancient times had a lot of say of whether their daughters got married or not, um, it, you read it in ASB, and has decided this in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. Okay? Admittedly, it's difficult language to translate, but I think the preferable translation is daughter here. There's a second reason. It has to do with verse 38. Um, it says in verse 38, New American Standard says, so then both he who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage will do better. Notice the word gives and give, because they're not there in the ESV. The ESV translated, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Again, this is difficult because Paul does change the verb in verse 38. All along in this passage, he's being used a ver- uses a verb, which means to marry, to marry, to marry. And he changes the verb in verse 38 to be given in marriage. And this verb is found only seven times in the New Testament, twice in this verse, five other times in the Gospels, Matthew 22, 30, 24, 38, Mark 12, 25, Luke 17, 27, and Luke 20, verse 35. All other five times, it's clear that it's translated as to be given in marriage. And so the difficulty comes is that this verb is never used outside of the New Testament. And the previous verb that is used, which means to marry, is used outside of it. And that other word is used interchangeably, to marry and to be given in marriage. It could mean both. And so those who hold the position, that, like the ESV translates, that this is speaking to betrothed, they believe that a word 
which is not used outside of the New Testament, is synonymous to the one that is used outside, and therefore you should be able to use it both ways. And it's just not as convincing to me. If I had to choose, I really think that... So the question that we're left with is, why did Paul change the verb? And the answers that the translators of the ESV give is that he changed the verb for variety, which, you know, it happens in Scripture. Sometimes you use a synonym, so you're not saying the same thing, same word over and over. But the NASB says, no, it doesn't seem like it's variety. It seems like he's speaking to fathers here, and the idea is to be given in marriage. So those are the two reasons, one from verse 37 with the verb to keep, and one with uh, verse 38 with the verb to be given. To me, I think we're talking about daughters here. Um, And so we go back up to verse 25. Any questions on that? I don't think we need to belabor that, but uh, some of you can study that on your own. It's interesting, but... um, Again, the application is going to be the same. So um, we come to this passage, and we see that the principle for singles is the same. Verse 25 says, Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion as one who by the mercy of the Lord is trustworthy. I don't think we should be hung up on the fact that he uses the word opinion here. You could, some translations could have used maybe a different word. He's not just saying, hey, this is really just my opinion. It's not the inspired word of God. He's not taking a break from that. He used similar language back in verse 10, where he says to the unmarried, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. The reason he says that in verse 10 is because the Lord had taught specifically on marriage and remarriage um, to in Matthew chapter 19. And so he's referring back to the Lord's teaching, and he's saying, I'm just reiterating what the Lord has already said. In verse 12, he says, but to the rest, I say, not the Lord. He's simply saying that I, who identifies himself as an apostle at the beginning, um, is saying this, but uh, he's saying that this is new teaching. This is not from the Lord. And I think the same spirit is being communicated in verse 25, and uh, yeah, 25, and he's saying this is trustworthy, but they had been making a law out of what he said before. He had said before, back in verse 1, remember, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, and they had taken that and made it a law. If Paul said it's good not to touch a woman, then it's bad to touch a woman, and we should all be celibate. That's what some people were apparently preaching. They were prizing this spiritual kind of idea or a a spirituality that prized physical abstinence from sexual activity across the board. And so just to make sure that he's not saying some sort of law, he's saying, hey, there's some freedom here. This is opinion. It's trustworthy. Down towards the very end, I think there's some sarcasm here because I think some people were arguing that we have the spirit of God. And he says in verse 40, and I think that I also have the spirit of God, you know, I think he's being a little bit uh, sarcastic. He was from time to time. Um, and he says again in verse 40, in my opinion, she is happier. And so he's saying, I'm giving you my perspective. I think there's some wisdom here, but I don't want it to become a law. And so I think that's the bookends here that he's really trying to emphasize. Um, and then he says in verse 26, I think that it is good in view of the present distress that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a wife? Do not seek a wife. 
And so here we have this whole idea of, of kind of referring back to what he's already said. You're married, don't seek to be unmarried. You're released from a marriage somehow, don't seek to be remarried. Don't make that your life ambition, your life goal. And I think one of the words that really stands out in verse 26 is present distress. Present distress. Um, I think that that's an important word for us to consider because um, what, what distress could he be talking about? The, the word originally, it means stress or calamity. Um, it's used sometimes to refer to violence or even torture. So what current calamity was there in Corinth? Um, well, uh, the most logical answer is persecution. Paul himself was involved in persecuting the church before he came to faith in Christ. So it makes sense that there were still some people, some Jews, who were, had animosity against the church for preaching Christ as the Messiah. Um, by the time this letter was written, about the mid-50s of the first century, Philip had already been crucified. Fox's Book of Martyrs records that Erastus, who was the city treasurer in Corinth, man that Paul mentions by name in Romans 16.23. He was an, a believer in Corinth who probably came to faith in Christ under Paul's ministry. He was one of the earliest martyrs. And it was only about 10 years after 1 Corinthians was written that the persecution of the church really exploded. And we have much written about Nero, the Roman emperor, who had not yet been on the scene, but that was coming. And Paul felt this... Uh, Almost, have you ever been in a, in a culture where you felt like things are going downhill? I think that's what Paul was trying to communicate, that for the church, things are not looking good. And, and he turned out to be right. He saw signs of that. And so he's saying, remain as you are. He's quick, though, in verse 28, as we move to the next section. The next section is uh, the next key idea. The first one was the principle for singleness, and that is remain as you are. The second one is there's freedom for singles, and that freedom is related to the other groups he's already spoken about. And as we look at verses 28 through 40, we're going to look at four different groups because that's how he breaks it down. We're looking at married people, singles, fathers, and widows. So we're looking at those different groups as he addresses the issue for singles. And what's interesting about this is he says now concerning um, virgins, but continually he uses, and virgins, I think he's speaking about single women, daughters, uh, but he continually uses examples of single men as well, men who have not been married or unmarried, and he, he keeps on switching pronouns, uh, or in English it's the pronouns, but in, in the verbs it's clear that, uh, and in, with the nouns that he uses, that there, there are, uh, and also the articles, they're masculine, they're feminine, and he's going back between he and her and her and him, so pay attention to that as we read. So f- there's freedom for singles, and the first people that he relates the freedom to The first group is the married people, verses 28 through 31. He says, but if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. And I want to stop here, and I think this would be a good time 
to have a little bit of discussion before we go on with this first section. Because why does Paul say that you should remain single, but you have the freedom to get married? How does that help single people? There's an important qualifier here. And keep in mind that he has referred to the gift of singleness. Back in verse 7, he says, Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God. And in this manner, one in this manner and another in that. And what he's saying there is some have the gift of marriage and some have the gift of singleness. Now, we hear that, and you picture two kids on Christmas Day, and this one gets a bike, and this one gets a, you know, a big wheel or you know, I don't, you know, something else, you know, Legos. I don't know. And they're like, but I want his gift, right? And so the question comes up, well, what happens if I don't want my gift? And by the way, in the counseling room, there are married people who ask this question, and there are single people who ask this question. So... Uh, how do you know if you have the gift of singleness? How do you know? Who can give us an answer? Is anybody? Yes. Okay, peace in your heart and no desire to find somebody. Those would be signs. Yeah? Uh, any, anything else added to that? I think that's, that's, those are pretty good. I would say that uh, not all single people have the gift of singleness. Those who have the gift have two characteristic traits. One is that they're able to control or resist the temptation to fall into sexual sin. The other one is they're not preoccupied with a desire to get married. So, in short, they enjoy being single. Um, To answer the question, well, what if I don't want my gift? I think it's important to turn back to Matthew 19 and look at what the Lord taught about um, singleness there. Because in Matthew 19, the Pharisees have tried to trap Jesus about divorce. And Jesus responded with a very difficult statement about divorce and adultery. Matthew 19, verse 9, he says... And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And so he's saying uh, the only exception for divorce would be infidelity. Later, when Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter chapter 7, verses 12 through 16, he gives another exception, a biblical exception for divorce and for remarriage, would be abandonment by an unbeliever. So abandonment and infidelity are the two biblical grounds for divorce. Verse 10 of Matthew 19, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of a man, of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. You see, they get it. Hopefully it's Peter not asking that because Peter was married, but uh, uh, we don't know who asked that. The disciples asked that. Verse 11, But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. 
And then he says, and we're reading this, it says, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And he who is able to accept this, let him accept it. And we're thinking, oh no, what could this possibly mean? Well, what he's saying is that there are men who are born with physical deformities where they cannot have sexual relationships. There are other men who, according to pagan customs and cultures, for a variety of reasons, emasculated themselves and physically deformed themselves or mutilated themselves so that they could not have sexual relationships. Perhaps it was because they wanted to serve in a kingdom where they could have a position overlooking a brothel and that was a requirement. Perhaps it was a pagan right, but that's not Christian and that's not something that, that, they should, that people should pursue uh, as an answer to any kind of temptation in Christianity. And so the Lord says, but some people are born that way. Some people have made themselves that way, okay? And then he's saying some people just live that way. As though they were eunuchs, they have no problem. They're not, they're not burning with passion, as he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And so uh, they have a gift. And of course... That famous monk who married the nun, Martin Luther, said that that gift was probably one in 100,000 people have that gift. So um, we don't know where he got the number from, but I like the quote. Gives us an idea, puts us at ease a little bit, helps us to, 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 to move on. So uh, back to, verses, um, to verse 28. But if you marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time has been shortened, so that from now on those who have wives should be as though they had none, and those who weep as though they did not weep, and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess... And those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. For the form of this world is passing away. One of the keys to understanding this section here, we've talked about the fact that there's present distress, that there's persecution. But now he starts talking about this time. He doesn't use what we might expect, chronos, which is where we get the chronology from. He doesn't use that word for time. He uses a different word. I don't think he's talking about a chronological order it's not that it's, things are getting faster, that the world's going to end sooner now. He's more saying, I think he's pointing back to the event of your salvation. And at that event, your whole concept of time has changed. Because it used to be you thought life was all about certain things, and now you have a completely different aspect. And you realize that you only have a limited number of days on this earth to do, and all of your priorities have changed. And I think that, that, that is, it, the examples that he gives highlight that. He says, the times have been shortened, verse 29, so that from now on, those who have wives should be as though they had none. He's not saying, honey, you know, <laughs> Bible says I should live like I don't have a wife. So she says, well, cook your own dinner. Or, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, He's simply saying, if your greatest priority in this world is to prize your marriage above all else, to idolatize, I mean, people think, what is life about? Well, for me, life is marriage. 
I read a book uh, by Sheldon Van Auken, um, which talked, he, he, he had several letters between himself and his, his wife and C.S. Lewis, which was an interest for me in this book. And, uh, but he, they talked about prior to coming to faith in Christ, they prized their marriage above all else. And it's, it's kind of a, I don't know, it's a book that men probably shouldn't read because it's fluffy and it's, uh, but it's, uh, he's, he's, he's uh, like, they're, they're talking about the shining barrier and anything that, that approached their, it's called a severe mercy. Severe mercy. They were going to cut off anything that threatened their marriage, anything. And they were so devoted to it that if one of them liked something, the other one would learn to love it because they wanted to be united in everything in their marriage, which means I would be practically a vegetarian. But the, um, uh, nothing was going to threaten their marriage because they prized it above everything else. And when they came to faith in Christ, the shining barrier, which was a term that they called their marriage. Isn't that weird? Hey, honey, don't remember the shining barrier? But anyways... Uh, uh, any person or anything that threatened anything with their marriage. And Christ obliterated that idea because now Christ is their focus and their marriage is not the focus. I think that's what we're getting at here is that you, you, your focus changes when you come to faith in Christ. It's no longer on marriage. Um, you might think those who weep as though they did not weep. Christians mourn differently than the world does. Things change when it comes to your sad times as well as your happy times and those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. We're not rejoicing in the same things we reveled in when we were unbelievers. And those who buy as though they did not possess. We buy things out of necessity. Sometimes we buy things and it's okay to buy things even if you don't need it. But you can't live like it like that's what you prize because we have a different focus. The time is different for us than it is for the rest of the world. And verse 31, and those who use the world as though they did not make full use of it. The world is not all that we're about. The world, in fact, is going to be destroyed, it says, uh, for the form of this world is passing away. And so that is what he's getting at here is that um, uh, he's talking about singles, and he's trying to address them, and he's saying that, you know, we think differently. And so uh, you have the freedom to marry, but you're going to have trouble. They're going to have persecution. And when you have somebody else to worry about besides yourself in a world that is passing away, it's going to be more difficult to keep that focus. He reiterates that point when he addresses the next group of people, when he, the singles in verses 32 through 35. I call these the singles because we have different groups of singles. Verse 32, but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried, that term we saw before, I think speaks of those who were previously married. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided the woman who is unmarried and the virgin. So there we have the two terms right side by side. It's one of the reasons why I think he's making a differentiation. Is it, it, he, he didn't say the women who are unmarried, including virgins. He, he puts another, another group of people, um, the, the women who, he says, um, uh, the woman who is unmarried, verse 34, and the virgin, that is the woman who has never been married, is concerned about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit, that is set apart, fully devoted, not divided, thinking about uh, things that married people think about, um, uh, having an intimate relationship that could distract you from doing things uh, that are to focus on the Lord. But who 
But one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This I say for your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate and to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And so there's freedom here for singles, whether you're unmarried um, or whether you have never been married, um, you can, you, you know, there, there's freedom in the sense that you don't have to be divided. And, uh, and, and in, in one way, Paul is sort of giving credence or giving more backing to his opinion that there are great benefits of not being married. And you could understand that from Paul because Paul's modus operandi was that he went to a village, he went to the synagogue, he preached Christ until some people came to Christ and, kicked, and then the others kicked him out or until they all kicked him out. And once they kicked him out, he preached to the Gentiles until many came to Christ and he kept on preaching there and shepherding them until the Jews couldn't stand him anymore and they would chase him out of town throwing rocks, sometimes chasing him to the next town and then stoning him <coughs> and uh, leaving him for dead. <clears throat> I'm just, I'm not choked up at that. I'm just, uh... <clears throat> but it is quite a horrific thought to think that Paul uh, himself would never thought, what about my wife and kids? He never, he never thought about that because he didn't have to think about that. He could only think about, take my life and let it be. And fully devoted unto the Lord, no matter what it takes, whether to live as Christ, to die as gain. So uh, he saw that advantage. He's trying to encourage them along that line. So we see not only that there's freedom related to married people and freedom related to singles, but freedom related to fathers and daughters, verses 36 through 38. Verse 36 says, But if any man thinks he's acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, that's a, that's a, a difficult phrase to translate because... Um, and that's why in the ESV, it says something like, uh, if his passions are strong, right? Remember, it's speaking to the, the groom-to-be and his fiance. If his passions are strong. And you say, how could this be translated, if his passions are strong, or, as the NASB, if she's past her youth? Right? That's... Because if your passions are strong, you're no longer young. No, um, because that's not it. The reason is, is because the word here literally means beyond the point. That's what this, uh, this, is it actually an adjective? If he or she, which is interesting, the verb here, it could be he or she. If he or she is beyond the point, well, the translators looked at it. What does it mean to be on the point? Well, if it's speaking about a guy who's engaged, he's beyond the point because his passions are strong. And if it so, so one word they translate his passions are beyond the point. Uh, maybe she's beyond the point. She's beyond the point of. Hey, she's not getting any younger. And so that's why we have it. Again, it's a very difficult phrase to translate. We have to look at the context. Um, perhaps they could have just left. But see, they had to choose whether it's she or he. And, and, and they only can, can do that when they start looking at the different pronouns used before um, 
and uh, whether this is actually the, the husband-to-be or the father. Okay, if any man thinks that he's acting unbecomingly toward his virgin daughter, if she is past her youth, and if it must be so, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin, but... So he does not sin, let her marry. But he who stands firm in his heart, being under no constraint, but has authority over his own will and has decided in his own heart to keep his own virgin daughter, he will do well. So then both he who who gives his own virgin daughter in marriage does well, and he who does not give her in marriage would do better. It seems like what's going on here is that in line with everything else in chapter 7 that he's talked about, this idea that people have have hijacked his phrase that it's good to to remain uh, free from sexual relationships, that verse 1, it's good for a man not to touch a woman, that celibacy is a good thing, and that people had made that a law, that some fathers who had their daughters uh, were saying, I'm not going to let you marry anybody. I think you rather should be devoted to the Lord. And so fathers who had a lot of say over their daughters in those days, and, and there should be a legitimate relationship between fathers and daughters. Today we do this in our marriage ceremonies and fathers typically walk their daughters down the aisle and we do that based off of traditional marriage. And there's a, there was a cultural idea from long, long ago, thousands of years ago, that fathers give away the daughter to be married. And of course, Genesis tells us that a new family unit is formed then. And so, but we have this idea here that um, some fathers were saying, I buy into what these preachers are saying. It's better for you to remain celibate. Therefore, you're not getting married. And maybe they'd even made a vow. And now Paul is dealing with it saying, hey, you don't, you don't have to keep that. That's silly. You misunderstood what the truth is. And uh, you're fine if you let them get married. You're fine if you don't, though. But he doesn't say you should probably talk to them. But you probably should talk to them. So uh, that's what he's getting at here. So when, as it relates to fathers, there's freedom. It's the same thing he's been saying. There's freedom. There's freedom as it relates to married people, freedom as it relates to um, the, the, the singles, freedom as it related to fathers, and then there's freedom as it relates to widows, verses 39 and 40. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Notice that he's talking about here... Um, uh, you're a widow, and it's a lifelong commitment. This may be another reference to some of the advantages of singleness, is that, hey, this is a lifelong commitment here if you're married, and uh, it, it has certain obligations that may take you away from things. It may make it more difficult to be focused and undivided in your devotion to Christ. But he says, if her husband is dead, now what should I do? Going, again, going back to the widows. Should I marry? Should I stay uh, unmarried, and he says you have the freedom. And it relates that, I think, to the similar issue with virgins. Um, you're free to be married, whoever she wishes, but only in the Lord. Another qualifier there. Hey, you can't marry an unbeliever. That's what I'm not. I'm, I'm, I want you to stay away from this. No more of those marriages for those of you who are already in them. In the church, the church shouldn't be promoting that. Uh, but in my opinion, she's happier if she remains as she is. And again, there should be a qualifier there if she has the gift of singleness, because if she doesn't have the gift of singleness, she's not going to be happier there. And that's the greater context back from verse 7. And I think that I also have the Spirit of God. 
So this comes back, we find these key principles or key ideas for single people. One is the general principle, remain as you are. Secondly, you have freedom. Questions? Questions about this passage? Yes. Yeah. So if someone is single and they're saying, I don't really want this gift, but it doesn't seem like I have any other option right now, okay? The reason you're single is because that's God's will for you. And uh, I believe that if you don't have the gift of singleness, he's not going to keep that from you for no good reason. And, and I believe that you will, he will answer your prayer and he will provide a spouse for you. Um, so it's, it's possible that you can do things to hinder that or to delay that. But the bottom line is this. What Paul's saying here is this. No matter what situation you're in, try not to make that your life focus. Try to avoid that and just try to serve him with all your might and be devoted to him. And, and God's will will take place. This is part of what believers do. Believers believe. We trust in a God who is all-powerful and who is good, who loves you, who, who deserves to be glorified by your life and will do what is best for you and whatever will bring the most glory to his name. That's what we believe. And so let that be our focus. Another question. Yes. Right, right. So the question is, when does the adultery take place? Let's take a look at, at the verse again, Matthew 19, 9, and it says... Uh, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Um, so the, um, I'm just looking at the, the uh, so the exception there is for except for immorality, right? That's infidelity. That's being unfaithful. What happens is uh, if you have a couple and, uh, let's say that the husband cheats on the wife, okay? She, he has an affair, he, and he's not repentant about it, and they get divorced. First of all, he can be repentant about it. You're not mandated to get a divorce. So there can be forgiveness and reconciliation and sweetness that you would never imagine. It can happen. But if, uh, so adultery has already taken place, all right? Now that they're divorced, they have biblical grounds for divorce, and she is free to get remarried, not worrying about committing adultery because she has a relationship that's already been severed by an adulterer. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? Okay. All right. Okay. Any other questions? We've got three minutes left. We covered a lot. We kind of zoomed in here and there. 
but I felt like this was one section that we wanted to kind of get under um, under our belt. If you have more questions, yes. Do you think that everyone who is single has the gift of singleness? No, I do not think everyone who is single has the gift of singleness. I was single at one point, and I did not have the gift of singleness. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think that I think that's good and that brings up an important point of the whole chapter and a good way I think to wrap it all up. And that is there's really kind of these two uh underlying ideas here that are important. One is um it it's 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 wrong if you are prizing something above Christ. And that goes along with the whole theme of First Corinthians and the idolatry early on and all that you prizing marriage or singleness above Christ. And it's, it's interesting that they prized singleness above marriage, and our culture tends to prize marriage above singleness. But secondly, it's wrong to look at other Christians as though they are lesser because of their marital status, as though they're somehow second-class citizens. And again, in this church, the issue was, well, you're married, you're not as spiritual as we are. And we tend to see single people and say, oh, shame. You know, well, you know, you're... you're and, you know, an untapped blessing or whatever the little phrase is or, you know, um, undiscovered. I don't know. So, but the, the whole thing is, you know, people used to, people used to I mean, they, they, listen, I was single. Uh, I got married at 31. We met, I met when I was 29. Anita was 16. I mean, sorry, she was uh, <laughs> 23. And um, anyways, we met. And people would say, why are you still single? I mean, before I got married, why are you still single? And I'm like, uh, I don't know. I move around a lot. It's tough to hit a moving, moving target, I guess. Um, but I think the best answer is I'm still single because that's God's will. And, and, and I know that because I serve him and I trust him. And really, that's it. And, and, and so I want to encourage you to encourage one another and build up one another and make sure that we are focused together as a body. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for, again, this study. Help us, Father, to avoid um, wrong focuses, whether someone's married and all they can think of is how do I get out of this situation, or someone is single and they're thinking about how do I get married, let that not be what defines us. Let our chief defining characteristic be you and your name, and help us to love one another with a care for one another that doesn't look down on each other. 
And so thank you, Father, for your grace in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.